Here's something you've probably experienced. <clears throat> Life is fine until it's not. Can I get a witness? Right? Like, life is fine until it's not. It's kind of like Chunk in the basement of the Fratelli's hideout in the Goonies. Uh, who, who's seen the Goonies? Show me your hand. Wave it. Best movie ever! I love two movies. I love Back to the Future and I love the Goonies. Like, if they told me, go to a desert island with, you know, five movies, I'd take two. The Goonies and Back to the Future. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's got some cussing in it, though, because it's from the 80s. So if you're a little uptight about that, then maybe wait until you get old enough to uh, hear them say bad words. Um, it's a great movie. I love it. So there's a scene, one of the misfit kids, the Goonies, he's my favorite. His name is Chunk. He's the, he's the chubby kid. I love Chunk. And he's always hungry. And so they're in the basement of the Fratellis. The Fratellis are bad people. They've killed a couple of the cops, and they're money laundering, and they're just, they're, not, they're bad people. Italian people, too, so I always kind of glare at my wife. I'm like, see, I told you. The Fratellis, they're eating pizza, they're arguing all the time, just like my in-laws. It's crazy, except we don't kill no cops. Anyway, so they're hiding in the basement of the Fratellis because they're on the track of One-Eyed Willie and his mythic treasure, and so they're trying to find, you know, how to get to One-Eyed Willie's treasure. And so the Fratellis have stepped out, they're trying to hide the body, and so the kids are down in the basement, and Chunk is always hungry, and he sees this water, and he's like, he's, again, bad, well, it's not a bad word, it's a good word. He's like, oh, God, am I thirsty? And he sees this big, like, water thing, and he goes and he tries to drink it. Remember the scene? And he pours it in his eye. And he, as he recoils, he knocks the water dispenser, and it's starting to fall. And he goes, I got it. I got it. I got it. And it falls. And he stands and he says, I don't got it. <laughs> it's your life, right? You're like Chunk and me. Life is fine until it's not. You ever feel that way? I got it. I got it. I don't got it. You may have a succession of weeks where you feel like you got it, and then, wow, I don't got it. You will get to the point, or perhaps to multiple points in your life, where nothing but a miracle will save you. I'll say it again. You will get to the point, or perhaps multiple points in your life, where nothing but a miracle will save you. Fortunately for you, um, Jesus, as evidenced in Mark chapter 14, is turning everything on its head. Now, I hope you have a coffee with you. Did you know you're allowed to bring coffee into the sanctuary? Yeah, like, get your, yeah, there you go, coffee at the back. So bring your coffee in and enjoy it. So if you have your coffee right now, you're the smart one, because this is 72 verses long. This is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you're our guest this morning, you've never been here before, this may be one of the first times in your life you've gone to a church where the preacher is actually going to read an entire chapter of Scripture. And I just want to say, I do this all the time. That's what I do. I preach through a chapter of scripture, and that's it. So, like, we're not going to stop doing this. So if you find it incredibly boring, I'm sorry. There's plenty of churches where you can go and get three points and a joke, and see you later. This is not that church. So here's Mark chapter 14. It, <laughs> what kind of pastor is this? A good one. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so it's Passover in Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There's a prophecy from Jesus that just came true in your hearing. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, it's too much for him, this waste, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And on the first day of unleavened bread, the first day of the Passover, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, you've heard this before, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, so even Jesus and his disciples sang worship music, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, I love Peter, he reminds me of me, He's a bit of a fool. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Shimon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many commentators think that's Mark's cameo in the Gospel of Mark. Remember we said off the top that Peter lies behind the Gospel of Mark? Most interpreters think that this is where Mark shows up. He's like, I was there and I was naked. <laughs> and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest, he's finally sick of it, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. His accent was giving him away. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Mark chapter 14. I feel more comfortable in second service, too. It's really weird. See how this goes. We uh, start the passion narrative here. Okay, so this is the start of the passion narrative. The passion narrative is really important for us as Christians because the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are basically the two pillars on which stands our Christian faith. Okay, it's a really big deal what's about to happen. This is the beginning of the passion narrative. Jesus is about to go and, you know, uh, give death a kick in the you-know-what. Okay, this is the longest chapter in Mark, 72 verses. And here at the beginning of the Passion narrative, I'm going to show you seven things that Jesus is turning on its head. Okay, seven things that Jesus is turning on their head. So if you're listening this morning, if you're listening online, you're taking notes, this is what you're looking for. One of those seven things might be for you this morning. One of those things that Jesus is turning on its head. I want you to find hope as you hear what Jesus is turning on his head this morning. That's the point. The point is for you to find hope because Jesus is turning these things on its head. The first thing he's turning is death into something beautiful. He's turning death into something beautiful. We see this outlined in verses 1 through 11. So here's what's happening in this section. Jesus is chilling at Simon the leper's house. This is kind of weird because usually you don't hang out where lepers are. They're very contagious. They're outcasts in Judaism, so you're typically not hanging out at their house. I love when Jesus does weird things like this. Okay? And it's just kind of an aside. Like It's like he's hanging out at Simon the leper's place. I think that's pretty cool and worth noting. He's hanging out at Simon the leper's house, and then a woman who many think is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He's the dude that died, and then Jesus raised him again to life. 
This is his sister. So most scholars think this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who shows up. She walks into this room and breaks this flask or this jar of perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus' head. So a couple weird things. One, chilling at the house of a leper. Two, that a woman who's unmarried approaches a man who's not her husband in public. Also very weird, especially a man who was considered a rabbi. And the weirdest thing about all this is that this flask of perfume that she breaks out and pours all over his head, and in the Greek it sounds like it it soaks all into his body, was worth 300 denarii. Now we may think 300 denarii is 300 bucks. It's not 300 bucks. It's 70,000 bucks. Okay, A denarius was one day's wage. So this is 300 days wages. This is a year's salary. The average salary in Guelph is $70,000. 70 grand, she breaks out and pours on Jesus' head. And some of the disciples are um, pretty grumbly about what they perceive to be a frivolous act. They're like, this, this is a waste. We could have sold that per. It's worth 300 denarii. It's worth, <laughs> can you imagine? If I was like, you know, I think we really need to um, install some $70,000 lights. You'd be like, heck no. Why 70 grand when we can get them for 700? You know, I think we should spend 70 grand on ice cream for kids who come to church. You're like, that's a waste. That's, I don't care how many kids you make happy. Not for 70 grand, you're not. Right? So if you ever feel that way, when we're doing anything cool for the sake of the children of Guelph, just remember these fools right here who are upset about this woman wasting 70 grand, pouring out perfume on Jesus when it could have been sold and given to the poor, and they scolded her in verse 5. Look what Jesus says in verses 6 through 9. Jesus says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I want you to notice, she has done a beautiful thing to me. You know what beautiful is here in the original language? It's more beautiful than beautiful. She's done an ideal thing for me. How powerful is that? She's done an ideal thing for me. Here's the point. You want an ideal life? Focus your affections on Jesus. That'll preach good. Okay, she's done an ideal thing. You want to live an ideal kind of life? Focus your affections on Jesus. Here's the point, okay? Love of Jesus is never wasted. Never. I'll say it one more time. Even the extravagant, apparently wasteful love of Jesus is never wasted. It's never a waste. And look, ideal doesn't mean perfect. Okay? To live an ideal life doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means you have to try. How do I know? Because of verse 8. She has done what she could. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So look, when it comes to... This is great. I hope you receive your freedom. When it comes to following Jesus, you don't have to do everything. You just have to do everything you can. Different. You don't have to do everything but you have to do everything you can. And here's the key point. This is where I found my sermon. Honest to goodness, I didn't have a sermon until Thursday. Okay, I've preached this passage several times in my life, but I had no idea what it was about this time around. And it wasn't until Thursday came that I found this point, and all of a sudden the whole thing opened up for me, and I hope you are shocked 
by the structure that I found. I want to just say the structure that we're about to jump into here in this passage, I did not design. In fact, I didn't even know it was there until I discovered this one point. And then when I discovered this one point, all of a sudden I noticed the same point echoed throughout the structure of Mark 14. So I hope you're ready for it because it's awesome. Here's the key point. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Verse 8. Jesus is hanging out at a leper's house. He's just let a woman wastefully manhandle him. Why? So that he can go to his death smelling like life itself. Because that's what the perfume of nard smells like. I mean, if we were in an Atlanta church, I would say, somebody shout! I never noticed this before. I preached this a bunch of times, and I never ever noticed that this means that now Jesus is going to go to his death smelling beautiful. Because $70,000 worth of perfume soaking into his... Like, he goes right from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes from the Garden of Gethsemane right to his trial. They send him from the trial before the high priest to... um, um, Come on, what's the governor? Pilate. And he's tried in front of Pilate. And then he goes right from Pilate to being flogged. And so as they're flogging him, they're like, gee, he smells good, right? They tear the flesh from his back, and he smells like life itself. And he goes right from his scourging through the streets of Jerusalem. And as he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, everybody's going, he smells beautiful. They're like, what's that beautiful smell? And as he hangs upon the cross, drenched in his own blood and his own body fluids, he smelled like life itself because Mary had anointed him beforehand for his burial. He allowed her to do this. Why? Because he knew that at the cross he was going to do something awesome. He was going to turn death into something beautiful. Right? Death is horrible unless it's Jesus dying because he's dying in your place for your sin. And because he's God in a body, he's not going to stay dead, but he's going to arise again the third day, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And this will lead to the immortal words echoing down the centuries to us today. Where then is thy victory, O grave? O death, where is thy sting? Because your Jesus has turned death itself on its head. He's turning death into something beautiful. Friends, they tore his body. But he tore the veil. He's turning death into something beautiful. So the next time death comes calling in your life, i got to shout it. No, I don't have to. Tell it about your beautiful Jesus. Did you hear me? The next time death comes calling, death is horrible, death is dark, death is ugly, and death stinks. The next time death shows up, tell it about your beautiful Jesus. And remember that he's the one who keeps faith, not you. Because, two, he's turning betrayal into covenant. Now, here's where the symmetry gets scary. Okay, so remember, I just discovered in writing this that he's turning death into something beautiful. Then I go to the next section. I didn't even know there were seven sections until I did the work. And I was like, okay, here's section two. What happens in section two? Verses 12 through 26. Okay, here's what happens. He says, find me a room to keep the Passover. He says to two of his disciples, just go into the city. You'll see a dude with carrying a thing of water. Follow him. Whatever house he goes into, you go in. Ask the master of the house, where's the room for the teacher? He'll have a room already ready for you. Okay? Pretty specific, awesome instructions. Either Jesus is a very good event planner, and he had it all organized. Could be. Or he's gotten a body, and he's just like, in the moment, knowing what's going to happen. I like that version better. Yes, I'm a charismatic. Okay? So either way, what's important about this is that his instructions come true. 
They go into the city, there's a dude with a jug of water. They're like, we should follow that guy. They follow him. They go to the house. Let's go in. Oh, where's the room for the master? Like they're bracing for the rejection, right? Do you ever do this? You're trusting God, but re- bracing for a rejection? Maybe stop it, right? Maybe have some faith. Trust God and <laughs> brace for the victory because what happens? Hey, I got a room right here. It's all ready to go. Happens exactly as he said it. So a little, it's like a throwaway point, but it might be for you today. So um, next time Jesus speaks to you, trust him. You know, maybe try that one on for size. <laughs> then at dinner it gets awkward, though. I never noticed this either. He books a very big room. He sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem to find the room. Whenever we hear disciples, we always think the 12 disciples. But it's not the 12 disciples, because you see right here in our text that he shows up in the evening with the 12, which means it was other disciples to set the room up. And it's a very big room, much more room than we need for 12 people. And we're so impacted by the picture of the Last Supper, right? The 12 of them at this table all looking fancy and renaissance-ish in their robes, okay, it's probably not like that, right? This whole bunch of disciples probably in the room and the 12 with Jesus, and things get awkward. Right in the middle of the Passover said there, he says all of a sudden, truly I say to you, verse 18, one of you will betray me. You ever been in like an awkward silence kind of moment? Everyone's like, is it me? Is it me? How awkward would that have been? You're celebrating Passover, it's the great triumphant moment where remember God setting his Jewish people free from slavery in Egypt. And then Jesus all of a sudden, like, co-ops it. So you know what? One of you is going to betray me. Here's another throwaway point for you, but it might be important for you at some point in the future. Um, not everybody who appears to um, be close to Jesus is. So guard your heart. But I want you to notice this most importantly. In the face of betrayal, here's your symmetry again. What does Jesus do? In the face of betrayal, he makes a covenant. That's heavy. We see this in verses 22 through 26. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. In Matthew's account, which is broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's hijacking the Passover seder. And he's making a covenant. Friends, in the face of faithlessness, he's just said, one of you is going to betray me. He makes covenant. How awesome is that? He keeps covenant and he's going to see it through until he seals it one day with a very big glass of red wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So I want to say to you as a Bible preaching pastor who loves you, if you don't like wine, you should start practicing. Because at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the last thing you want to do is to say to the archangel who serves you, no thanks, I'll pass. Okay? I'm suggesting that's not a good plan. So I'm not saying drink a lot of it. I'm just saying, you know, once in a while, drink a little bit of red wine for thy stomach's sake. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Or uh, drink it because Jesus is going to have a very big glass of wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here's what that's going to look like out of Revelation 19, 17. Oh, get ready. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Okay, you're part of that great multitude. This is why I'm trying to encourage you by modeling it to shout in church. Right? I'm trying to encourage you by modeling it to get loud in church. Why? Because just like you're going to need to know how to drink wine, you're going to need to know how to shout in the presence of the Lamb because I heard the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And what are they crying out? Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, 
the Almighty reigns. Remember Handel's Messiah? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Right? Isn't that awesome? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, I'll take you someday. Like a voice of many waters. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, friends. Jesus is inviting you to supper. If you've ever felt betrayed, if you've ever betrayed someone, and are therefore expecting judgment, just like Jesus said, one of you will betray me. I want you today to decide to accept his invitation to dinner. Okay, that's your destiny. Your destiny is to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So get ready. Accept his invitation. That's where you're going. Not because you're good, because he is. And that good Jesus suffered and died on that cross in your place for your sin. And so the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. And he died the death that you should have died because of your sinfulness. And the death that I should have died because of my sinfulness. And he took the wrath of God so that you don't have to. And because he was God himself, he arose again the third day, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell in his body. And that triumph was once for all. And so guess what? That invitation to the supper of the, the wedding supper of the Lamb... It's going out to everybody. It's go- and I don't know if everybody's going to say yes, but I know that everybody gets invited, and I expect to see lots of people at that table worshiping that Jesus. So come to the table, all you who are hungry. Come and feast in the immortal words of Isaiah 55, because he's turning betrayal into covenant. And point number three, he's turning abandonment into welcome. We see this outline in verses 27 through 31. I'm preaching better in second service than in first. Thank you, Lord. He's turning abandonment into welcome. So what's happening here in 27 through 31? They're on their way to uh, the Mount of Olives. So I did this in first. I'll show you again. So let's imagine someday we'll get like technologically advanced enough that I can have all these maps for you and et cetera and whatever. But for now, just picture it with me. Imagine the city of Jerusalem is in front of us on a map. Behind me is the Temple Mount. So here is the city of Jerusalem. The, um, the, the upper room, if archaeologists are correct, is kind of up here on the northwest quadrant of the city. Just south of it is the, the um, castle of the high priest. He literally lived in a castle. And just here is the castle of, of Herod. So it's kind of the north quadrant of the city, west side. And so to get to the Mount of Olives, he would have walked around the perimeter, down through the Valley of Kidron, and up onto the Mount of Olives. So it's about a half-hour walk. So they're walking from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. And again, Jesus, bummer man, he delivers. Look at what he says to them in verses 27 and 28. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will, this is so good, I will go before you into Galilee. Quick point for you. Again, it's kind of like a, by the way, if all the first disciples abandoned Jesus, maybe we should cut ourselves and others some slack when we struggle with following Jesus. Just saying. Do you you get that all the first disciples abandoned him? Hung out with him for three years, saw him raise the dead. Some of them saw him transfigured, saw him walk on water, saw him feed the multitudes. Okay? And these people, all of them, not just the 12, all of them abandoned him. 
Next time you meet somebody who's struggling to follow Jesus, have some mercy. And if you have been beating yourself up because you're not following Jesus very well, know that God has mercy on you. How do I know? Ooh, I love this point. Because Jesus' response to abandonment is startling. You know what he says? You're all going to abandon me, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. This is what he says in verse 28. And you think, okay, whatever, big deal. He's going into Galilee. Who cares? You would care about it the second you read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Lucky for you, I'm here. You're welcome. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Okay, notice, he's gone back to his previous vocation. He's no longer catching men. Now he's catching fish again. I'm going fishing. They said to him, okay, we'll go with you. What else do we got to do? Jesus is dead. Oh, well. Right? I'm going fishing. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you got any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, because unlike Mark, he doesn't want to come naked before the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging their net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Here it is. When they got out on land, they saw... Just let your mind be blown here. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. He done made them breakfast. He already made them their breakfast. I'll say it one more time for emphasis. He made them breakfast. He made them breakfast. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Not because he needs them, but he wants to involve them like a good father does with his kids. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the nether shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Who doesn't love breakfast? You know? And Jesus loves breakfast. That's my kind of savior, right? That's a good savior. Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So in his resurrection body, he looks awesome enough that they're like kind of thinking it's him, but they're not quite 100% sure. They're like freaked out a little bit. Imagine how crazy that is. Like he looks different enough that they're not sure, but they don't want to ask him because they don't want to seem stupid, right? And he has made them breakfast. Hmm. They abandon him. He makes them breakfast. Somebody shout! Right! Right! (laughs) They abandon him. He makes them breakfast, friend. That is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. 1 John 4.10. You'd think I was just quoting the Bible, but I'm not just quoting the Bible. I'm quoting John, who was there at breakfast because he's one of the sons of Zebedee. So John was there when Jesus made breakfast. So that's why he said later in his life that that one who made me breakfast by the sea after he rose again from death to pay the penalty for your sin and mine, ooh, he's love itself. He's love itself. And John should know Because he was invited to breakfast, and friends, so are you. Even though you may have abandoned him, Jesus is inviting you to breakfast. 
Will you come? I hope you come. I hope I'll save you a place. If I get get there first, I'll save you a place. Going to Breakfast with Jesus. That's a good book title. Remind me later, I'll write that down. Breakfast with Jesus. So good, somebody's probably already used it. You should come to breakfast because he's the one who, point four, I will speed up a little bit. He is the one who is turning sleepiness into watchful prayerfulness. This is what happens in verses 37 through 42. They're in Gethsemane. Okay, the Garden of Gethsemane is like mythic to us. To them, it was an olive grove with an olive press. That's all. Cases on the other side of the Valley of Kidron, it's there to this day. There are actually some olive trees there today that are 2,000 years old. So maybe there were saplings when Jesus was first there. He could have stayed in the city to pray. He likes the outdoors. If you're a camper, you're biblical. Right? He's outdoors. There's trees. That's where he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's suffering as he prays. He's asked his disciples to watch and pray with him. But instead of praying, they keep falling asleep. We see the account of this in verses 33 through 38. He took Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba. Notice that he calls God the Father, Daddy. Daddy, that's Abba. Abba le, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Shimon, Atayoshen. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. They're pathetic. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Zell, enough. It's enough. It's enough. Enough already. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus invites his disciples to partner with him in prayer, and we go to sleep. You're still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. Friend, another throwaway point, but one that might be for you. The time comes to stand up and get to work. Maybe today for you, you realize the time has come for you to stand up already and get to work. Many people sleep their lives away. You don't have to do that. Because you've been bought with a price, because Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, you no longer have to be enslaved to sin. You can stand up and get to work. So let's get up and get going, following the Savior who turns things on their heads, like how, verse 5, he's turning violence into healing. This sermon just gets better and better from this point on. He turns violence into healing in verses 43 through 52. Judas shows up with a mob from the high priest. Peter, a guy like me, he's packing heat. He's got a sword. In the Greek, he pulls his sword. It's like a hidden sword, a short Roman sword. I love this guy. I'm exactly like him, a fool most of the time. So he's like, da-da, da-da, pulls a sword, and he goes to chop off Malchus's head. Malchus was the servant of the high priest. He goes to chop off his head, but Malchus ducks, probably athletic, cuts his ear. Whoop. See how that happens? Because it always sounds so lame. Like, I'm going to cut off your ear. Chick. Nah, he's swinging for the fences. Going to take off his head. Malchus ducks, whoop, takes off his ear. Okay, we think it's Peter. John thought it was Peter in uh, chapter 18. And uh, Jesus does something totally amazing in response 
Uh, Luke records it in his version of these events in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 52. So we already know what happens. The crowd comes. Judas betrays him with a kiss, etc., etc. And uh, when those who were around him saw it would follow, they said, Lord, hear, hear your foolish Pastor Todd in this moment. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said <laughs> to all the fools like me, no more of this. And then he touched his ear and healed him. Friends, Jesus is turning violence into healing. Malchus is the servant of the high priest come to arrest him and take him to his death. Peter, the fool, tries to kill him, cuts off his ear. Jesus says, stop it. Puts Malchus's ear back together. You follow a savior who turns violence into healing. I don't think it's a stretch to call your savior, up, your savior upside down and backwards, Jesus. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 43 and 45. You want to turn your life around? Let Jesus turn you around backwards and upside down because, point number six, he's turning accusation into proclamation. This is what happens in verses 53 through 65. They bring him before the high priest. They're trying to falsely accuse him, but nothing sticks, and he's not defending himself. And finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, freaks out and shouts at him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And I imagine that Jesus at this point, who's been silent to this moment, shouts back at him because of what follows upon Jesus. Jesus' response, Caiaphas shouts, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Caiaphas tears his clothes and screams, blasphemy. They accused him. But Jesus turned it into an opportunity for proclamation. He says, I am. And you will see me coming with the clouds. Friends, Jesus will not keep silent forever. How do I know? Because I know 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and I can't preach this quiet. I hope you came prepared. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I don't think the trumpet is one of these Robin Hood trumpets. No, I think it's probably a Jewish shofar, and they sound like Norse war trumpets. You're working your job on your roof, and you hear. Your life's busy falling apart, and you can't help yourself, and you hear. I don't think he's going to blow it quietly. And then, ooh, I'm about to see stars. He says with the voice of an archangel, you may have heard me do this before, but if not, it's your first time. I'll do it like it's your first time in Hebrew first and then in English. What is Jesus shouting, pray tell? I won't do it again. After he blows the trumpet of God, he's shouting, Hine, Mishkan, Elohim, Imanashim, Veshachan, Betuchan, Vehem, Yihiyulo, Le'am, Vehu, Hayalahem, La'Elohim, Vemacha, 
כל דמעה מן עיניהם, והמוות לא יהיה עוד, ואין אבל וצעקה או כואב, כי הראשונות חלפו ואינם. In English, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God, receive it, church, will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who was seated on the throne said, Ve'hayoshev ala kiseh amar, Hine ani oseh hakol chadash. Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21, 3 to 5, friends. Your Jesus is turning everything on its head. Worship team. You can run to the stage, including, point number seven, he's turning tears to joy. Okay, if you took Mark 14 at face value, it would be a very depressing account because it ends depressingly with Peter denying Jesus three times. It gets so bad, the third time the servant girl asks him if he belongs to Jesus, he anathematizes himself. He pronounces a curse upon himself and shouts at her, I don't know this man. And then he goes outside and the rooster crows a second time. And then and only then he remembers the words that Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter, what? Broke down and wept. So friend, if you are in a season of weeping, this whole sermon was built for you today. If you are in a season of weeping, this is for you. Now hear this. Here we get a recap of the points of this sermon. Is death or betrayal, or abandonment, or exhaustion, or violence, or accusation, threatening to crush your soul. Let me, in light of this, remind you what Jesus came to do in the immortal words of Isaiah 61, 1-4. The Spirit, Jesus himself preached these words once in a synagogue in Galilee. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. My dear friends, this is what Jesus came to do for you. He came to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You need a miracle to save you? Fortunately for you, Jesus is turning everything on its head. 